Find the words of our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5, which is on page 1186 in the Church Bible. The words came to me as not in word only. Here in the NIV, they are not simply with words. The Amplified New Testament expands them for our preaching of the glad tidings, the gospel, came to you not only in word, but also in its own inherent power and in the Holy Spirit and with great conviction and absolute certainty on our part. There is a sense in which this morning's message has been brewing for a very long time. For I recall the warning of a wise servant of God who went to be with the Lord some 30 years ago. Uh, Not that what I bring to you has been on the back boiler, as it were. It suddenly exploded on me a fortnight ago as I was preparing to go to Emmanuel Dudley. As I got up and as I began to get dressed and ready, texts and verses and hymns and passages, scriptures just bombarded me. There are three or four things to underline here. First of all, not simply with words. Then, secondly, also with power. Thirdly, with the Holy Spirit. And finally, with deep conviction. And we start with the phrase that gripped me and bombarded me and thrilled me and overwhelmed me and encouraged me and reassured me and delighted me. Not in word only. Some people are described as being very gifted with words. And we know that to be true. But words can disguise and deceive. Rather more than 30 years ago, almost as a passing remark in a discussion, Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, beware of journalists. And a fortnight ago, I just read some words that made an impact on me. They were words of a missionary who returned home from the Democratic Republic of Congo to find the newspapers absolutely full, passionately writing about a kitten that had been found in a wheelie bin. And hardly a mention at all of 200 women who had been gang-raped in Congo. I further recall someone saying of the film The Atonement, which I had not seen, that the personal life of one of the film stars was so contrary to the character portrayed that it undermined the message of the film. But it's not only the media or political personalities who weaken what they say by what they are and what they do, but we find it in the Bible. And we find it, if we're not very careful, in our own hearts and lives. 
that what we say can be weakened by what we are and what we do or what we don't do. I ask that we should have Job chapter 11, the speech of Zophar. It's answered in chapter 13 by Job. Reading it in isolation, we have to agree that much of what he is saying is absolutely correct and right. And some of the other speeches are read in isolation, equally correct and right. But Job's assessment of what his friends say to him are that they are miserable comforters. So that their words, though containing truth, are lacking in something. What happens in scripture also happens in personal experience. I remember some years ago a passage was being expounded clearly about the love of God. His love was being magnified and the unworthiness of sinners was being declared in no uncertain terms. And it was made abundantly clear that God had given a most wonderful gift, his son, for those who were least deserving. And mentally, I was in full agreement with the words. But all of a sudden, it hit me like a thunderbolt that they were words only. There was no evidence of the love spoken of being shown to those who were in need of it. And whatever power there was in the words was not healing and comforting and transforming, but they mocked and they hurt. No wonder the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, When I come to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing among you while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, writing to the Christians at Corinth, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power, but of power. And the parallel passage in some senses that has been impressed upon my mind and heart for very many years is where Dr. Lloyd-Jones ended his public ministry at Westminster Chapel. He was preaching through Romans and he'd come to chapter 14 and to verse 17. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. After he was uh, recovered from his surgery, he came to his beloved fraternal at Westminster. And he spoke to us about his experience and he said, I believe that God stopped me at a particular point. He said, I had dealt with the negatives in that passage. And I believe that I knew something about righteousness and peace. 
And I experienced that peace all through the time of surgery and in hospital. But I had more to learn about joy in the Holy Spirit. It's said of the great Anglican minister of God, Charles Simeon, that when he was due to preach the university sermon at Cambridge, there was great expectation of a display of scholarship with many classical allusions. And he was aware of this, and he was troubled by it because he felt called to preach simply the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to the salvation of sinners. And when the day came, there was great disappointment. And uh, not only disappointment, uh, but a disapproval as he preached the gospel simply and winsomely. Do not misunderstand me. Words are important. They are essential. For we cannot fully agree with Sir Francis of Assisi, who is reputed to have instructed his fellow monks, use words if you have to. I wonder if he was so aware of words without life and words without power that in seeking to correct one error he was in danger of falling into another life without words. You know that in the epistle of James there is this balance kept between faith and works so that when people were boasting of their works and what they were doing James says I will show you my faith by my works and writing to the Christians at Rome the apostle Paul said in chapter 16 and verse 18 such people are not serving our Lord Christ but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the minds of naive people not surprisingly words have fascinated men down through the centuries giving birth to well known proverbs you will know some of them a 14th century proverb Many a true word is spoken in jest. Uh, a 16th century proverb that's got a bit of a sting in it. A word spoken is past recalling. A word spoken is past recalling. We have a saying, don't we? I had to bite my tongue. And sometimes it's a good thing if we do bite our tongue, if it prevents us from saying something that we shouldn't say. Or another from, I think, the 16th century, one ill word asketh another. True, isn't it? An angry word can provoke an angry response. 
An honest man's word is as good as his bond. When I was doing national service in the early 50s, I remember a fellow officer saying to me, you know, the word of an Englishman is his bond. He said, do you know a barrel boy in a back street in Cairo will accept a check from you? I found sometimes when I go into the bank that I've gone to for 50 years, they ask who I am and what my address is and what my card number is. You see, our word is no longer our bond. But there was a time when it was so. In Proverbs 15 and 23, how good is a timely word. The Lord Jesus, quoting from Deuteronomy, said, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Moreover, we know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We sang, God has spoken by his prophets. God has spoken by Christ Jesus. God is speaking by his spirit. And some of you will know another hymn. Word of the everlasting God, will of his glorious Son. Without it, how could earth be trod or heaven itself be won? I couldn't have all the hymns that came to mind. Another one was, Lord, thy word abideth, and our footsteps guideth, who its truth believeth, light and joy receiveth. And it concludes, oh, that we discerning, its most holy learning, Lord, may love and fear thee, evermore be near thee. When the phrase not in word only, flooded my mind. An outline came immediately, which I have not followed, but it was, first of all, the importance of words. The insufficiency of words alone. The inerrant power of the word. And the invincibility of the word and spirit. But having touched upon this awakening, not to say reawakening, not simply with words, we turn to the phrase, also with power. Notice the also. The power is bound up with the word, as in a moment we shall find that it's bound with the spirit. The Apostle Paul said to the Christians at Rome, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Not the power of a superior mind or intellect. It's not the power of a few favored men. It's the power of God. So that Paul said to the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, 
but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom but on God's power. There it is, God's power. If your faith, my faith, rested on the wisdom of men, it would be all right until somebody wiser came along and somebody dissuaded us of what some other man had said. But if our faith is based on the power of God, nothing and no one can shake that finally. Takes us back to 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul writes, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks and their modern counterpart. But those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Let me just highlight three things about power. First of all, power belongs to God. 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, and the majesty, and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Not only in the Old Testament, but in the New, several places in Revelation, quote from chapter 19, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Power belongs to God. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, before he left this world, gathered the disciples to him and spoke to them. And this is what he said. All power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Not about the power of governments and of dictators and of tyrants. All power in heaven and earth belongs to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And this power is exercised through the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, we read concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, God raised him from the dead. And in Romans 8, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Listen again to Paul writing to the Christians in Rome and in the first chapter and this is what he writes in verse 4. 
through the Spirit, this is concerning the Lord Jesus, who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. This power of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is revealed to us in his word. No wonder the writer to the Hebrews says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Not in word only, also with power, with the Holy Spirit. We've anticipated much already that should not surprise us because power is linked not only inseparably with God's word but with the Spirit. But there are several stages to note. On the last and final and greatest day of the feast, according to John 7, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture, the word, has said, streams of living water will flow from him. By this, he, Jesus, meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Oh, in the past, the Spirit had come upon individuals for special tasks, but not to dwell in men and women as he was promised to do after Jesus was glorified. The way to know the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit is not by strange experiences, is not through special meetings or select individuals. It is the promised consequence of coming to Jesus Christ, repenting of sin and believing in him, trusting him, relying upon him. It is the fruit of repentance and faith in Jesus. In Acts 2 we read of the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit being fulfilled. All of them, and there were more than just the apostles, were filled with the Holy Spirit. Yet even after that in Acts 19 when Paul arrived in Ephesus and found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. On hearing this, and surely we are to understand believing it and receiving it. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. And when the apostle Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now this is a record of what happened in the earliest days of the church. 
there was a transitional period moving from the preparation by John the Baptist and the fulfillment of all that had been promised after the death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a blueprint for all time. What is clear from the teaching of the New Testament is that those who repent of sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are born of the Spirit. The Spirit comes and dwells in the heart of the believer. Some of us are old enough to uh, know what has been happening in the Church of Jesus Christ in the Western world since the late 50s and early 60s. And at times there have been extremes and excesses. There have been all sorts of claims of the ministry and the effect of God the Holy Spirit. Some of them have been very wonderful. Some of them have been very strange and even contrary to the sweep of the New Testament. And in the light of this, some of us feel that there has been a reaction, perhaps even an overreaction. A friend of mine in the ministry who is retired but who is very busy itinerating, uh, particularly in the uh, south east and east of England, but also in India and in Kenya, tells me about the difference between people hearing the word in India and Kenya and receiving it and what happens when he preaches here. And his great burden is that here people don't seem to know about God the Holy Spirit. And he said to me only recently, I'm feeling that everywhere I go, I have to stress the need of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, not in word only, but also in the power of the Spirit. My final reference under this third subheading does not mention the Holy Spirit directly, but reveals clearly the necessity of his powerful work. In Acts chapter 16, we read that the Apostle Paul had arrived at Philippi. And on the Sabbath, he and his companions went outside the city gate where they anticipated finding a prayer meeting. Paul, surely after the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the most powerful, biblical, spirit-filled men of all time, began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of the women uh, among those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, and she was a worshipper of God. And this is what we're told. The Lord opened her heart that she might attend to the words of the Apostle Paul. Here she was at a prayer meeting. Here she was, a worshipper of God. 
arguably after the Lord Jesus Christ, the most powerful, spiritful preacher. Wasn't enough. The words of the Apostle Paul in themselves were not enough. The fact that she was a God-fear was not enough. Something more was needed. The power of God to open the heart. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. So that our prayer, my prayer, is that God would open hearts. Not simply to hear the word, but to respond to it in, res in repentance and faith. The message of good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and save the lost, to give his life a ransom for many, to save such as you and me. Has your heart been opened? Is your heart open to God by his Spirit? And if not, why not? And if not yet, why not now? Why not cry to him in the deep place of your inner being and saying, Lord, as you opened Lydia's heart, will you open my heart to Jesus and to the incoming of your spirit? Finally, with deep conviction you know how uh, not simply in word but also with power with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction after a service here recently one member commented to me about Pastor Tim's sermon that was straight from the shoulder Sometimes the comment is made after a service. That was from the heart. If it is from the head only, it is likely to be to the head only. If it is in word only, it is likely to be received as word only. There must be more if it is going to lead to conviction and conversion and to a person being able to say from their own heart, I know, I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded. In a bygone age, a preacher is reported to have said to a leading actor of the day, why is it that I preach eternal truths and few come to hear me while you utter the temporary words of men and people flock to hear you. The reply reported was something like this. Perhaps I proclaim the temporary words of men as though they were eternal truths while you relate eternal truths as though they were the temporary words of men. Listen again to the Apostle Paul as he 
writes to the Christians at Rome in perhaps one of the best known passages. This is what he says. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The apostles' burden was for his fellow men. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I conclude what began from the words, not simply with words only. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And you also became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath, not in word only, but in power and with the Holy Spirit and with great conviction. May it be so again. May it be so here. We sing together as we close. Spirit of faith, come down and make the Godhead known. So overlook what they say. It involves a choice, a deliberate refusal to hold an affair.